0: Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode
1: everyone, welcome back to another edition of uh, ASTTT Talks. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. It is my pleasure today to be interviewing Dr. Urvi Shah. Dr. Shah is an assistant attending physician on the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. She's an expert in everything related to multiple myeloma, the diet, the microbiome, and her research interests kind of span all three of those. Dr. Shah, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program.
0: Thank you so much. Glad to be here too.
1: Of course, there's so many things that I would love to talk about with you with regards to your amazing research in myeloma. Today, we're going to focus maybe a little bit more on the practical nuts and bolts of bispecific antibodies, which I know is a, a topic that's near and dear to you as well. So maybe we can jump into it. I think there are both on this ascc talks and then other media there have been many many debates about car t versus bispecifics in refractory multiple myeloma maybe we can sort of just a little bit more practically you know not just academically but when the patient comes to your clinic and you know they've had they're on their fourth line of therapy starting to have progressive disease now how do you think about treatment options for them whether that be car t whether it be bispecific like the clistamab or something different
0: uh, great question. And I think the answer is pretty nuanced uh, and I think individualized to a patient. But I, what I tend to do is I first prioritize clinical trials if good options are available. So we'll look into seeing what's available for their disease at that time. If trials aren't a good option, then we always have the standard of care as a backup. And it's nice to have options now with that too. In terms of looking at um, uh, the options between car and and bispecifics, I think we can think about it in three broad categories when we try to make these decisions. One would be the disease, two would be the patient, and three would be the logistics or availability. So if we think about the disease, um, if disease is very uh, rapid progressing or fast to um, move, it may be hard to plan CAR T cell therapy and we, because CAR T cell needs a lead time of at least four weeks to get the cells ready. So in those situations, I think off the shelf by specific CAR T cells are probably a better option. Um, In terms of logistics, not every center has CAR-T slots available, and also some centers may not have the expertise with doing bispecific antibodies, so I would prefer whatever is available and convenient. For that patient where they live instead of them having to travel for that. So I think that's another thing to think about. And then in terms of patient, I think there are two things that come into play. It's patient preference. So would they like to have like a one and done kind of approach where they might have this time without treatment for a long time or a break where patients who are already now relapsed and refractory have been on continuous therapy for years usually. So this break can be a nice respite from everything that they have had going on before. Uh, and um, the other thing would be maybe they don't want that inpatient stay. They want to, and a little higher risk of toxicities with the CAR in initially. And so they would rather do it outpatient. Uh, Eventually, like bispecifics also need the admission, but, you know, eventually they'd rather do that once a week coming in for their treatments and then maybe bispecifics is better for those patients. And then the last thing in patients is looking at comorbidities and what do you think they can tolerate as well as long term infection risk, which may be a bit higher with bispecific antibodies. So I think uh, to summarize, I don't think I can give a clear answer as what we prioritize, but I think we have to look into each patient, discuss it with them, and come up with a plan together.
1: This is wonderful. I actually hadn't even thought about it as structured of a manner as you had. You kind know, of disease, patient, and logistics. Almost you can kind of make a scale for each domain there. Yeah. Um, really- and and agreed. I think that's a really really. Difficult situation because also patients might not have heard of some of these options, whether it be CAR T or bi. I feel like sometimes I have patients who come in and they've heard of CAR T, but you're like, oh, we also have bi specifics. And I'm like, oh, what are those? And educating them and learning what they actually value is important. Um, so, with that, maybe we can pivot into bi specifics and in particular to clistamab. You alluded to some of this earlier in terms of inpatient versus outpatient. So, maybe we can delve into cycle one because I think this is a topic that you know, as the audience hearing this will know there's no right answer. Every center across the country is doing it slightly differently. How are you approaching that first cycle of teclistamab you know, from a patient perspective in terms of the timing of the step up dosing? Are you doing an inpatient versus outpatient? Are they being asked to relocate to Manhattan, for example, or can they stay, go back closer to home sooner? How do you approach that at least now?
0: Great question. I think this is something that is individualized per each site and center and also based on what is available in terms of resources and for the physician's uh, comfort levels. Um, At our site, we give step up dose one, two and the treatment dose inpatient and then the rest of the doses are given outpatient. Um, These doses are given at days one, four and seven. Um, We also allow up to two to four days between doses. So if a patient's had CRS or something, it may be a little more spaced out. And if a patient didn't have that, maybe we move it up further and they do it on day one, three, and five. So I think that uh, allows for some flexibility depending on how patients are tolerating it. And then once they're outpatient, you know, all our sites at MSK um, are able to do this. And so then we just transition them to the weekly dosing outpatient.
1: So that's actually a unique strength, I would argue, of MSK that I, if I recall correctly, you know, all of you rotate at some, or have some clinics some of these satellite sites or not at, the, at the, the other sites that are owned by MSK. So yeah. I, I wonder, yeah. so, you know, going forward, do you think that maybe fast forward in the cycle two onwards, do you feel like it is very practical to have those be at the satellite sites? And then maybe, uh, especially of that question, do you feel like it's ready for usage in the community for cy- cycles two onwards?
0: So we have already been giving um, the teclistimab doses at our satellites, Um, and and they're not really satellites, but they're our regional centers for MSK. So it is still part of the MSK uh, umbrella, and the facilities are pretty close to what we have in the city. So I understand like for other hospitals, satellites may be very different in terms of even the computer system or the training and staffing. And so it can be something that needs to be individualized in community practices. But I think that we know that the risk of CRS or the toxicities is the highest with the first few doses, and it's quite rare after that. And so I think that uh, if a patient's tolerated it initially, we could have them, you know, be close enough to the site to be able to come in if they had a fever or toxicities, but then we, we can transition them to outpatient probably in most centers. And I think community also, it's just a matter of, you know, the comfort level, doing a few doses and realizing like what's happening at their site, what are the uh, barriers to giving it outpatient. And then once that's all set up, I think some sites have very good outpatient uh, clinics where it's staffed 24-7 or things like that. So they can, you know, if a patient calls with side effects like a fever, they can come in at any time. So it really depends on what's available at that site to be able to provide that to patients.
1: Absolutely so, agreed. And I think, as you said, it's not just the physicians at these sites, it's like the nurses, the pharmacists, yes. and everyone else kind gonna what they're working with with this in terms of what to expect. Um, you know, one of the, apprehensions that we struggle with, you know, even for patients being treated at our center is, you know, kind of the, the long-term effects of of teclistimab, and particularly the infection risks that you kind of alluded to briefly earlier. Um, so I'll talk about the logistics of who manages those and how, but in general, how does one, or how, how would you approach infectious prophylaxis and, and and you know, IVIG, et cetera, in the real-world setting for your patients on teclistimab?
0: Yeah, um, I think with these bispecific antibodies and as we're seeing these immune therapies come into myeloma, these are patients who are extremely relapsed, refractory, already at increased risk of infection. And then we add a d- drug that increases risk of infection further. So we are now dealing with uh, you know infections that we never did as uh, myeloma specialists. Uh, and these were things more post-transplant or post-allo that we would see, but now we're starting to have to think about it in our patients too. And so it is a learning curve for um, oncologists who don't do the transplant getting comfortable with these infections. Um, I think that. Um, Acyclovir, which we use pretty much for most myeloma patients, you know, for prophylaxis of VZVHS, we um, related to daratumumab, bortezomib needs to also be continued, I think, in this setting, post-eclistomab. And then some sites, and we tend to do this, is do uh, um, uh, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia prophylaxis uh, with bactrim or any drug that, you know, would be right for that patient. And I know that this is, again, some centers may not be doing this across the board, but um, that's a preference. Um, And then the next one would be, you know, and that could also be one way to think about that is you could do T-cell subsets, know what the CD4 count is for a patient, and then decide. So that could be another way in deciding PCP prophylaxis, although it's not evidence-based for myeloma, but we would be taking it off the HIV data from that if we decided to do that. And then other things is if the immunoglobulin levels are below 400, similar to what we do if they have increased risk of sinopulmonary infections, a lot of providers are giving intravenous immunoglobulin at that time as a monthly dose. And then evaluating for serologies before they start, like baseline serologies for things like CMV, uh, would I think be important hepatitis B surface antigen to see if they are carry like have hep B carrier status um, to look at risk of reactivation because that could be real as well. And if they have CMV at baseline or even if they don't, maybe checking this weekly on patients as they come in for doses. Um, and then the last thing would be like antibacterial prophylaxis. I think that's something that we would probably individualize similar to if a patient's neutropenic or not. So if they are persistently neutropenic, I think that could be done. So um, I think it's different at every center slightly, but um, we have to keep a high index of suspicion for infections and anything that doesn't seem right, like it, it could be a rare infection that you're not thinking about. So that's quite important with bi-specifics.
1: Agreed, and in particular, it seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, with the BCMA bi-specifics, like ticlisumab in particular, as you alluded to, even more so than the BCMA CAR-Ts, maybe even more so than the GPRC5D CAR-Ts. Um, I'm curious about the CMV, because I know you're also on the study of the GPRC5D CAR-T therapy, uh, and I think, or maybe there with the CAR, where they actually did have some cases of actual CMV reactivation, right, after uh, therapy. Um, so, yeah, I'm almost scared to ask. You know, if you do check CMV and it's back, you know, what would you would you hold the dose for those particular patients for CMV? Or would you try to use valacyclovir depending on the titer of it? If you don't think acyclovir is covering it, or it's a very case by case consult infectious disease kind of decision.
0: I think that's a great question. What do we do with these titers? But I think that, you know, we probably have to learn from our transplant colleagues as to what they are doing and kind of match some of those things, you know, in terms of, I think transplant, we do post-transplant CME titers are checked and uh, they have guidelines as to how they follow these titers and what when to intervene. And we probably need to match and do similar things for teclastimab. But again, we don't have evidence-based guidelines yet for teclistimab, and we only have cases in these early studies of patients reactivating this. So as we give more of this drug in the community and academic centers, and we have more research into what's the true incidence of this and how it helps to check these titers or not, I think we'll have to refine our um, um, decision-making and what we decide to test for
1: absolutely very very eloquently stated you know i think one of the you know you and i were just talking about before the podcast started was well if we space out the doses or if we stop the doses you know would that make a difference with the infection risk i mean i think you know several of the majestic one pis have said you know on the record in interviews and talks that they've had some patients who stopped the clistabab on the early days of study and remain in crs months or even years later you know so do you think time-limited by specific antibody therapy is coming It's something that you would do right now some of your patients? Or conversely, are there patients where, although the packages are for teclastimab is every week until progression, are there patients where you might a priori think about spacing their doses out?
0: So I think, you know, it, it, there was a meta-analysis published from the um, University of Arkansas Medical School group where they looked L-D-D's at, group. Uh, yeah. They looked at uh, a meta-analysis for all the uh, patients who have had bispecific antibodies. There were about 1,185 patients in that uh, meta-analysis with 11 trials. Although the median follow-up was short and only six months, they showed that the infection risk was about 50% and uh, grade 3 and 4 infections were 25%. And of the 110 patients that died on that study, through amongst all those studies, 25% were due to infections. So the infection um, rate is high, the severe infections are high, and the deaths due to infections are also high with these bispecific antibodies. So I think that. Um, we still have to understand if we make the dosing less frequent, is the infection rate lowered? I don't think we know that yet. But oh, in, that's true. In, in the sense of you know, thinking about um, uh, w- what we can do. Um, even the majestic two trial at uh, has looked at. Um, maps spaced out with cycle three onwards where it's every two weeks. So I, I think that like I would be comfortable with patients if, and of course a discussion with a patient on telling them what the evidence we have so far, but I think that if a patient's achieved a VGPR, CR, or MRD negativity and the response has plateaued and they're doing well, considering spacing it out further to every two weeks at least, and maybe potentially every month, could be reasonable to think about, although we know that, you know, evidence for this will hopefully come soon and we don't have that yet.
1: Agreed. And then the caveat, I'll add, you know, speaking of things that we, the the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. So the unknown unknown, right, is that if someone takes three, four weeks off therapy and you give them the next dose, are they at risk of CRS happening again? Um, And I, if I recall, the package insert says, I think if it's a four week pause, you're supposed to straight up reload them, step up dosing, hospital, all over again. And that's a lot if someone stops therapy for an infection, and then now it's been a month since they recovered from COVID, and now you have to do this whole thing over again. So, agreed. A lot of stuff that we don't know about spacing out the Clistoma, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, Great. This is very, very, very helpful, and uh, you know, as as Dr. Shah and I both said, there's no right answer for anywhere. You know, in the country, we're figuring out as we go. But I love what you said about you know, learning from our transplant colleagues. Does you're right, in a way, we've kind of drifted away from our transplant colleagues, and obviously, for some of us listening to the show, the transplant team is a bi-specific team. But I think a lot of synergy there in terms of these infection risks, in particular. So a lot of things that we can learn from each other. Um, any parting thoughts or any other closing remarks about bispecific antibodies, teclistamab, or anything in the real-perfective myeloma space?
0: No, I think we've talked about it all, except maybe one thing is that, you know, we're still to see GPRC5D bispecifics get FD approved, and, you know, the trials are still ongoing. But it does seem to be that they have lower risk of infection than BCMA bispecifics, and that may be due to the target molecule that affects Things differently. And that may be something that I think will be interesting to see once both are approved. Do doctors prioritize GPRC5D antibodies over BCMA antibodies uh, for the infection risk and if the overall response rates are similar? And I don't know the answer to this, but I'm looking forward to seeing what happens and how it plays out once we have both these drugs and options for patients.
1: Agreed. I mean, I think that drug is proof that myeloma doctors can't agree on anything, whether it's (laughs) called talquetamab or talquetamab. I am a talquetamab person. Are you also a talquetamab?
0: I think so, yes. Yeah,
1: okay, fair. So this is talk quite about Dr. Shah is referring to that. I think we're excited to see and agree. It's a lot we have left. That is also, you know, savastamab, which targets yet another epitope in myeloma cells. So a lot of cool stuff yet to come. Um, wonderful, Dr. Shah. Well, thank you again for your time. Uh, this is very, very illuminating to me and to our audience. And to the audience, thank you all for listening to another episode of ACTT Talks.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Banerjee. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit astct.org.